Ryan Gorman here with Dana McKay, Jason Berenger in for James Berlander. And we have a very special guest joining us in studio right now. Former Green Beret and author of Operation Pineapple Express and Game Changers, going local to defeat violent extremists. He's also the creator of the Last Out Elegy of a Green Beret play, which is returning to the new Tampa Performing Arts Center. Scott Mann is with us. Scott, how are you? Hey, Ryan. Good to be with you. I was going through... um, you know, your bio, we've had you on numerous times mm-hmm. before, yeah. but you're also the president and founder of Rooftop Leadership. You're the founder of Task Force Pineapple and the 501c3 Operation Pineapple Express Relief, the founder of the 501c3 The Hero's Journey. It's exhausting. So much for retirement after the military. <laughs> yeah, come through all that you've been working on. We'll get to the play. It's great that it's coming back, and I think a yeah. lot of people are going to uh, enjoy it. Um, but first, I wanted to just kind of get your thoughts on on what you've been following recently in terms of the news and, uh, you know, what's happening over in the Middle East, in Israel, our troop presence uh, over there. Um, what are your thoughts on what you've been seeing? I think we're still in this long, protracted war. I, I know we've kind of declared it over with Afghanistan, but I think that, you know, when you look at the elements of violent extremism and how they manifest, they are fighting a long war. They they are They are fighting under a narrative that is is very very long and they will stay with it yeah. uh, you know the enemy has a vote right in this case they have voted to to stay in this protracted war and whether or not we choose to participate they'll pull us back in and i think that's what we're seeing right now do you feel like the attacks on our troops overseas in the Middle East, has that gotten enough attention? There was another drone that was taken down right. uh fired by the Houthi rebels uh recently and um it just it seems like I mean, we're talking upwards of, I think, close to 60 uh, attacks on our soldiers. And we have a lot. Yeah, I think sometimes people don't realize how many right. are in the region upwards of, I think, 40,000 among you know some of the different countries uh, in the Middle East spread out. Uh, right. It's a dangerous time for it, it really is. And what we have to remember, too, is that when you're dealing with violent extremists that do global projection, what they do is they set up shop in hard to reach places because yeah. that's where they can plan, prepare and project. And if you don't go and disrupt them in those hard-to-reach places, then they project into the places where we live, work, and play. Mm -hmm. Um, We saw a manifestation of that in Israel, but a a localized horrific attack like that is just as possible here at some point. So the, the dichotomy there is you have to go into those places and disrupt. But when you do that, when you are fighting an asymmetric threat like that that's nonlinear, um, you, your force is extremely exposed. And so I don't think we're talking about it enough. And I do think that we're going to have to really tighten down on the responses that we, yeah. we do when we are struck like that. Yeah, I have not uh, been satisfied with our responses, uh, you know, when you've got these right. different drones or you know, missile attacks on our troops. Um what Israel's faced with and that ground operation in Gaza, put that into perspective for us, the challenges that they're dealing with in going into Gaza and that particular kind of environment. Well, look, urban warfare, by definition, is extremely messy business. And when you live in a 24-7 news cycle where every single individual human with a cell phone becomes a sensor that can be a global reporter Right now, you're trying to fight this protracted war in urban terrain and rubble 
with everybody basically reporting on your every move and this expectation that somehow it's supposed to be clean. Yeah. Right. And war is not clean. War is an ugly, nasty business by any definition. But when you're conducting it where everyone is filming you, and frankly, I think the way that Israel has gone about this in terms of their messaging, in terms of how they communicate what's actually going on and, and reporting it as quickly as they can to the rest of the world, I think that's what they're going to have to do throughout because they are also in a war of narrative. There yeah. is this this war of narrative that's going on, and if you don't uh, compete, out-compete with that narrative that's out there uh, of war crimes and things like that, then it will quickly overwhelm you. Yeah, and what struck me, too, the difficulties between the tunnel system mm -hmm. that they're dealing with, and then you've got Hamas set up in these just, you know, locations, whether it's a school or a hospital. I, I mean, that just makes everything so much trickier for Israel because the goal is to take Hamas out, um, but to also limit the amount of civilian casualties as best they can. It's just... Yeah, and there are horrific casualties on both sides. Yeah. The people are suffering at a, at a massive rate here. But when you are, let's be clear, when you set up headquarters and quick reaction forces inside a hospital, that is a violation right. of law of land warfare, mm -hmm. right? So you have one side of this fight that is what seems to be following the law of land warfare, one that is not. And this is this is the challenge when you're facing an asymmetric terror threat that does not adhere to those rules. Um, it, it puts your force at even more risk. And that's why, you know, the complexity that Israel is having to wage this campaign, I think it's unlike anything we've ever seen. Yeah, and that's what I've heard from, you know, numerous uh, individuals that we've had on the show to talk about this, you know, with military expertise. They're all like, this is uh, yeah. unprecedented. And we should be paying very close attention. We should be paying very close attention to what happened on October 7th. Mm -hmm. uh, I still stand by my assertion that when we abandoned Afghanistan the way that we did, um, it set into motion a series of events. It emboldened violent extremists in a way that has not been seen since the Soviets left Afghanistan in the 80s. It sent out a clarion call across the, uh, I think, the UMA in many ways to for extremist groups to rally, for donors to write big checks, and I think that's what we're seeing. There's, there's this level of unprecedented audacity now that has just been building and building and building since October or since the Afghan withdrawal, and I think it's going to continue. And our, I believe our weak responses to the attacks on, on our bases that we've seen recently, yeah. I think that continues to embolden them. We are not sending a message that this is unacceptable. We're sending a message that, okay, if you do this, then we'll do a tit for tat. Yeah. And I, I don't think, think there's that's strategic effective. probes. Yeah. There's strategic probes to see what our response will be. And everyone is measured. Everyone is calculated and assessments are made. And, and this thing will continue to escalate. Make no mistake. And, and this narrative is very powerful mm -hmm. that our, that our enemies are following right now. And they, they are not, you know, when you look at will and capacity of your enemy, that's what you have to look at. Their will yeah. to press this fight is, is massive. Scott Mann, former Green Beret, author of Operation Pineapple Express, and he put together Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret, this play returning to the new Tampa Performing Arts Center in a few days. We're going to talk about that, how you can get tickets, and what you can expect from the show in just a moment. Back with more with Scott Mann next, right here on News Radio WFLA. Back now with former Green Beret, author of Operation Pineapple Express, and he put together the tremendous 
play last out Elegy of a Green Beret, Scott Mann. So Elegy of a Green Beret is returning to the new Tampa Performing Arts Center coming up December 6th and 7th. And for those who uh, don't have the backstory to uh, the play itself, how it came about and what you explore in it, tell us about that. Well, it was about six years ago, and I had you know, gotten out of the military, retired, and I looked around, and my, my oldest son told me he was joining up. And this was when we were still in Afghanistan, and it just struck me that most of the country didn't even know that we were still in Afghanistan. Yeah. And here my son was going to fight a war that I couldn't finish, and that, that, that line just kept going over and over in my mind. And I was already speaking and telling stories from the stage, and several of my coaches said, you know, you should write a play about this. And I'd never written a play, so... I did, and then to complete my midlife crisis, I decided to learn how to act at age 50, <laughs> and we recruited an all-veteran military family member cast, and we took this play on the road. We did it for the first time in Tampa. We couldn't even get a theater at the time. You know, I don't think anyone really took us that serious, so we did it at the Marriott downtown, 300 people packed, and, and it really brought the house down, and everyone in the talkback said, this needs to go on tour, so yeah. we did. In 2019, we toured uh 19 cities, I think, and wow. then uh, after the collapse in Afghanistan, Gary Sinise saw it. It's a low-budget film on Amazon, and he put us on tour again, and we're bringing it home to Tampa, where it all started on the 6th and 7th. Of the he year. really does tremendous work, Gary Sinise, uh, yeah. for Veterans Causes. And, and I want to point out, this play, it's been extremely helpful for veterans to go and see, especially those who served in it. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of people are surprised by is I actually, it is helpful to veterans, but I actually wrote the play with civilians in mind because I wanted to inform civilians and politicians on the impact and cost of a modern war. Mm -hmm. Not anti-war, not pro-war, but just to go inside one family a Green Beret family through the 20-year war, and to actually, my character is stuck between his fire base and his living room, uh, and he, he toggles back and forth after he's mortally wounded. It's kind of like, um, uh, it's a wonderful life with body armor, you know? Uh, and, 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 and civilians are rocked by this when they mm -hmm. see what we've asked our young men and women and their families to do for 20 years, uh, like we just talked about in this first segment, and then veterans sitting at the shoulder of these civilian neighbors yeah. feel validated. And there is an element of healing that happens in storytelling. You know, when I uh, talk to all these different veterans organizations, uh, we always talk about how um, other veterans being part of those organizations and having that common connection really helps veterans who are struggling. And part of it is that, you know, the civilian population, we don't understand it as well as like what another veteran has experienced. But this, I think you really do try to help bridge that gap a little bit. It bridges the gap. It brings communities together around this hard topic. Look, three out of five veterans feel like strangers in their own country. We had mm -hmm. 88,000 calls to the VA hotline in March alone, the largest on record. Yeah. And what we found is that storytelling is a way that for thousands of years, civil society have brought their warriors back where they sit together and they share stories and get shared perspective. That's what this play does. We call it our emotional breaching tool. It opens people up to the hard conversations, Ryan. And then we do a talk back after every performance. The actors come back out on stage and then veterans and civilians and family members can talk about what came up in the play for them, what their experiences were. And I tell people, anybody listening to this, whether you're a civilian or veteran, this story, you'll locate yourself in it 
And there is a huge amount of healing and perspective that comes from it. And lastoutplay.com, that's where everyone can go to get tickets. Again, lastoutplay.com. It's at the new Tampa Performing Arts Center, December 6th and 7th. And, and I don't want to give it away, but you've got some new twists at the yeah. end of this. You you really take it to kind of current day where we, we are, are here. We are pushing the envelope. I'll say that. On these last two performances, as we bring it home to where it started, there's an alternative ending. There are some surprises throughout this play. Even if you saw it this year, you're going to be blown away by the, the ending that uh, that we've inserted here. Very aggressive and I think very eye-opening. Uh, again, Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret. You can go to lastoutplay.com. That's lastoutplay.com to get your tickets. New Tampa Performing Arts Center, December 6th and 7th. It's well worth your time. And don't forget to pick up uh, Scott's books as well. Operation Pineapple Express and Game Changers, Going Local to Defeat Violent Extremists. Uh, Operation Pineapple Express is just a Thanks tremendous read. Former Green Beret, Scott Mann with us in studio. Scott, it's always great to talk to you. Uh, if we don't talk again uh, in the next couple of weeks, have a great Christmas holiday and Thank New you, Year. And I uh, look forward to having you back on soon. Same to you, pal. Thank you. All right. Back with more in just a moment right here on The Ryan Gorman Show. Ryan Gorman here with Dana McKay and Jason Berenger in for James Burlander. And right now, let's go to the Holland Group Hotline. Check them out at AskTheHollands.com and bring in retired USF political scientist Dr. Susan McManus for a preview of the debate between Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and California Governor Gavin Newsom taking place. Tonight, you can listen to it live here on News Radio WFLA starting at nine. Dr. McManus, have you ever seen anything quite like this? You have one candidate who is in the presidential race, another who's not in it, but clearly wants to be in it and is trying to set himself up to be the go to candidate if something were to happen to the front runner. I'm talking about Gavin Newsom here. Have you ever seen a dynamic like this, a debate quite like what we're going to see tonight? No, but I tell you one thing, if people tune in, it's going to be a lot easier to follow and observe the contrast with two candidates than it has been for six or seven or eight. Yes. So in that sense, it'll be fascinating. And I think each of them has in mind what they want to accomplish. And both of them will end up a winner because obviously... If you don't like Gavin Newsom, anything DeSantis says you're going to like and vice versa. So it will just simply, I think, reflect the level of polarization that we're in in this country right now. But fascinating? Yes. I mean, you couldn't pick two more polar opposite governors Mm -hmm. representing the largest and the third largest state and miles apart literally and figuratively in their thoughts on how to govern America. And... They're not only different ideologically, they're different stylistically, too. Gavin Newsom's more of that polished, kind of slick politician. DeSantis, not that at all. Uh, So just watching them, putting the substance aside for a moment, I think that's going to be interesting in and of itself. And actually, much has been made about their hairstyles and so forth to the point of where I never, as a woman, thought I'd see a man's hairstyle be a focal point of the media, but it has been of late. Uh, and certainly, their styles are different. But I'm telling you, both of them will treat this very seriously because this is a chance that each of them has to reach a broad stroke of America that they don't normally have a chance to get at. And you also have a situation where Gavin Newsom is clearly trying to position himself 
to be the heir apparent if something were to happen to Biden or Biden were to drop out of the race for whatever reason. And you have Governor DeSantis, who's trying to gain some momentum for his presidential campaign, which has been going in the wrong direction, especially when Nikki Haley seems to have some momentum at her back for that second place spot that they're both vying for now uh, behind, obviously, the front runner and former President Donald Trump. Absolutely. And of course, that, again, is the advantage of having someone who's the opposite party as who you're debating and not someone from your own party that you can be compared to, such as DeSantis has had with Haley and some of the others. So this is an optimal situation for each of these candidates. Uh, interestingly, though, Lyon, both of them won their last gubernatorial races by miles, so to speak. But in recent polling, both of them are pretty close in their favorability ratings and unfavorable ratings back home. This is what sometimes national politics does to what people back home think of you. And another thing is, this is a terrible time in some ways to be trying to sell yourself as a candidate. You get into the holidays, people don't like intrusion of politics. There's a lot of voter fatigue going on, and even running ads during football games or some special Hallmark movie or whatever can be a real turnoff to voters as opposed to helping them lean in your direction. So it's it's really touchy right now as to how you reach people, but yet time is short. Those January primaries are right around the corner. We're joined by retired USF political scientist, Dr. Susan McManus. I haven't watched a Gavin Newsom debate before, so I'll be very curious to see how he performs. I have seen him in interviews with people like Sean Hannity in the past. Obviously, uh, that is a tough setting for someone like Gavin Newsom. And I thought, uh, you know, putting, again, the substance or, or ideological disagreements aside, I thought he performed fine there. DeSantis, we have seen a couple of times, and I feel like he's gotten better each time he's been in front of the camera during these presidential debates. And I think he does better when the focus is on specifics of policy. And a lot of people are expecting this to be a more policy-centric kind of debate. On the other hand, what that often yields, and you've seen it in some of their bantering back and forth with each other, is accusing the other of spreading misinformation or disinformation. And so, you know, challenging the other, uh, uh, you know, parties' viewpoints and numbers that they're crunching and so forth. Ironically, they've been bantering for two years, but they've never met in person. So this will be a first. I think what also makes this so interesting and why I think a lot of people are going to watch it tonight is that you have two politicians who are trying to be the leaders of the next generation of their party. And they both represent states that they hold up as the example for either the Republican side of the aisle or the Democratic side of the aisle. I mean, you've got Florida, the free state of Florida, one of the biggest red states, and you've got California, the biggest blue state. Yes, and that's, again, reflective of the polarization of the country. Uh, You couldn't get any further left than Gavin Newsom, and you can't get much further right than Ron DeSantis. And there you have, really, these two debaters are basically have already become the faces of their respective political parties. And yes, the generational shift 
is being noticed, and for a lot of voters and people who are active in politics, it's it's about time. Final question for you. We got the news the other day that the Coke political network was going to get behind Nikki Haley. We talked about DeSantis needing a good performance at this debate to reignite his campaign, try to get some momentum back on his side. How have you seen things over the past couple of weeks, mainly in terms of that second place slot? You've got DeSantis and Haley trying to be the candidate to go up against Donald Trump one on one come the Iowa caucuses and beyond been the big story and for some people they think well the missing element is trump himself which has avoided the debates but let's not forget that december the 6th is the next republican debate and i think this one will be held in alabama so we have another debate right around the corner which is why this one is so particularly important to desantis to show how he performs one-on-one against the Democrat instead of just among other Republicans. This is very important for him heading into that last uh, GOP debate before the end of the year. Retired USF political scientist Dr. Susan McManus with a preview of the DeSantis Newsom debate. Again, you can hear it starting at nine right here on News Radio WFLA. Dr. McManus, thanks so much for the preview and the analysis. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you. And now let's go to the Holland Group Hotline. Check them out at askthehollands.com and bring in our market and air travel expert, Jay Ratliff. You can find him online at daytradefund.com. Again, that's daytradefund.com. Jay, it's great to talk to you. So yesterday, one of the big stories, uh, an increase or revision in the GDP numbers from the third quarter. Uh, they were revised up a bit to 5.2%, obviously a really great number. Um, but mm-hmm. when you take a, a bigger picture look at the state of the economy, not quite that hot. It has certainly cooled off uh, a bit. But we we saw spending at levels that we hadn't seen before between Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Travel, which we'll get to, which isn't cheap. Uh, I mean, record uh, travel. People continue to spend despite some uh, angst over the state of the economy. That's true. And sadly, some of the debt, that uh, personal debt levels, uh, continue to increase. Yeah. That's a bit of a concern as well. But the idea is how much money's coming into the economy and what are we seeing that's being turned over. And there's pockets of good news. And, and you're right, there's a lot of times that we can focus on that and give some indication that, well, maybe things aren't as bad as we think or we are, are kind of leveling off in some areas. But the bottom line is we're still fighting uh, inflation, and we will continue for a, a matter of time. And that's going to impact us to one degree or another. So uh, it always comes down to how it affects the, the average American, their families, their budgets, and their discretionary income. And as we move forward through this holiday season for the next month, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, how those numbers all fall out as we begin to see exactly uh, what's being spent and to what levels and on what so that we can get a better understanding of which way you know, things might be pointed. Billionaire investor Bill Ackman, he made some news recently uh, saying that, that he believes uh, interest rate cuts are coming. This is something that we've talked a lot about. <laughs> um, but now you've got uh, a prominent investor predicting that. Uh, does it seem like that could be 
something we'll see towards the the first half, let's say, of 2024? You still think that's uh, a little further down the road? I think it's further down the road, but look, I'm with you. I'm hearing a lot of individuals say uh, massive interest rate cuts, and they're saying as early as March. And, you know, if if I'm Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, I, I have to think, what language do I need to speak to properly convey to everyone that we have a 2% inflation target, and, and that's what we're sticking with? And obviously, when you look at where we're at versus how long it's going to take to get there and, and recognize sometimes how slow that needle moves, Ryan, I just don't see in, in the near future how that's the case. And I, I don't mind the opinions of a lot of people, many of which who are far smarter than I'll ever be, But the problem is when people read those headlines, they make decisions based on what they think is going to happen, and they put themselves into a financial pickle. And if things don't happen as fast as the experts say, then, you know, you go from there. And look, there's been too many times over the last 25 years of me watching the market that I've seen uh, individuals or groups of individuals talk about specific sectors or stocks or what have you about things that are going to happen only to find out that the exact opposite took place. So I'll certainly respect anyone's opinion that they happen to have. But when you look at uh, how long it's taken us to get to the point we're at now and how much longer it might take us to get to close to that 2% level, I just don't see anything happening fast that's going to accelerate that process unless Jerome Powell just says, look, uh, I've decided to, you know, change, completely change our goal uh, game plan here where we're going to exit, you know, at uh, maybe 3% or what have you in those types of things. But I don't see him changing. Uh, They've had a game plan that they've stuck with, and I suspect they're going to continue to do so. We're joined by our market and air travel expert, Jay Ratliff, who you can find again online at daytradefund.com. Let's talk about air travel now. And you had said going into the Thanksgiving holiday that that Sunday was going to be the busiest travel day of the year, uh, became the busiest travel day in history. It was. And, you know, it's surprising because we have thousands of fewer flights in the schedule because we still have a pilot shortage. We still have hundreds of airplanes that are parked on the ground, silver revenue tubes that airlines would have loved to have had operating during the 12 days of Thanksgiving from the 17th to the 27th. But uh, Sunday after Thanksgiving is always the busiest. We know that. That's not a hard call to make. But when we saw 2.9 million people fly that single day, uh, it was exceptional. And, Ryan, the two kind of P.S. notes to that was I heard from people across the country that day that were traveling, and they said, Jay, I don't want to jinx anything. But it's, it looks like any other day of the year. The TSA was fully staffed. They were getting people through security checkpoint in record numbers. The, the airlines had uh, all their personnel, all hands on deck. It was a smooth, smooth day. Now, we did have some weather that impacted us on that um, Sunday where we had you know 20% of Delta flights delayed, 20% of United. But when you look at somebody like Southwest, uh, they had 20% of their flights delayed, but they only had one flight cancellation system-wide on that day. So airlines, for the most part, did a very, very good job. But the airline that stood uh, far and away above them all, surprisingly, to me at least, was American Airlines. They they operated like 60,000 flights, canceled 53 departures, something like that, most of them weather-related. They just knocked it out of the park. And when you've got a hub in Chicago that was impacted by that weather like everyone else, and you still posted the numbers they did – 
I mean, it's a shame they're not making money. They're still losing money, but goodness, Ryan, they, they had an incredible 12-day run, and we hope all the airlines are going to have this much of a, a fortunate experience for us the last half of December as we approach the next holiday travel season. What do you attribute the fact that the airlines seem to get it right this time around? What do you attribute that to? You know, in the in the past where we've had uh, people drop the ball, it has been one of two things. It's either been a, a massive weather event, which has impacted flight operations, which we did not have. The other thing was a, a computer technical issue where the computers that were being used by whatever airline were taxed because of the fact that they were being required to do more than ever before, and they just melted. They crashed, and we didn't have that, thankfully. Of course, that was the issue that we had with Southwest Airlines last December when their crew scheduling uh, software uh, program, that computer from the 1990s, thank you, uh, crashed when they were trying to uh, to do all they could with that. So I think those were the two things. And I can't leave out the air traffic controllers. I mean, they were staffed yeah. as well, made sure everything kept operating smoothly. So from a team effort, uh, all those same players are going to have to show up. And yes, I'm going to be holding my breath on the computer side the last half of December. But we get through that and uh, yeah, we'll be in good shape. Our air travel and market expert, Jay Ratliff, with us this morning. You can find him online again at daytradefund.com. That's daytradefund.com. Jay, really appreciate the update this morning. Thanks so much for coming back on. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Ryan. All right. And did you see that story? Another incident, uh, this time on an American Airlines flight. Of course, it was leaving Florida, so there's a Florida connection. Uh, I guess the passenger, uh, he had checked his panic attack medication. He had put it in a checked bag started freaking out ended up having a panic attack <laughs> uh -oh. and one of the employees for american airlines ended up getting hospitalized uh, due to the incident he said he said uh quotes this is what he tells her he has taken down planes with panic attacks in the past oh my goodness wow <laughs> yeah now uh i will say didn't seem like there were a lot of incidents over the Thanksgiving holiday with that amount of travel. So there was the one woman on the flight out of Orlando who pulled her pants down in yeah. the uh, aisle because she had to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There was that incident. That is a pretty, a pretty epic one.